Today on Who Watched the Watchmen, we're going to be covering the PDpedia with a special uh, PDpedia correspondent, Josh Jordan. And if you don't know what the PDpedia is and you like this show, you're missing out. Yeah, stick around. There's a lot of fun stuff to talk about right after this ad that we have no control over. Welcome to Who Watched the Watchmen. My name is Matthew Carroll. And I'm Josh Jordan. Josh Jordan, what is happening, my friend? Hey, man. I'm excited to have you on the cast, buddy. Um, I think it goes without saying, uh, I'm excited to be here. We talk about the Watchmen a lot. Yeah, it's it's to the ridiculous degree. Um, Josh is one of my best friends, and he and I are both obsessed with this show. And Josh has dived deep into the lore in a way I have not yet. And uh, so he is constantly texting me like, have you seen this yet? Have you seen this? He's like screenshots with red string connecting weird things. I don't know. He's, he's uh, got a lot going on over there, but I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I got to say it plays to the uh, analytical obsessive in me. I can't help but dive into something I like, like, you know, and uh, this yeah. is no exception. If there's content to be, poured over i will absolutely devour it yeah and i'm i love it man i love it you're the you're the researcher of the two of us and uh it i benefit i I, all the time um so thanks for that yeah i don't know if i've always been that way some might say it's a chicken and egg thing Ah. (laughs) all right we'll understand that joke after we talk about the pdpedia some um so just to just to give a frame of reference to where my head's at i have my car broken in this to this morning yeah, tight. Yeah, that sucked. And uh, the thing that pissed me off more than anything, he didn't get anything important. He just stole change. But uh, guess what? I just just happened when I was pulling into my like house. What? I realized that he had pulled a full glass, a, a full cup with the lid on of soda <laughs> out of the uh, thing and dropped it oh, in my floorboard. Oh, no. But it didn't spill until just now as I was getting out of my car and I moved it apparently and it busted <laughs> open and a full glass of like root beer spilled all over my feet. You need to go clean that? I threw a towel on it. We're fine. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's talk about the PDpedia. So I, I think what we're going to do is let Josh just present us with as many PDpedia nuggets. First, what is the PDpedia? The PDpedia is an amazing resource HBO has made available. Um, if, if you're like me and you like facts, I mean, we live in an age where people research anything they consume, whether it's a podcast or a show, by getting on the internet and looking up what they can about it. And uh, HBO has provided a supplemental, I don't even want to call it supplemental because I feel like it, it adds to the canon of the show. It's a website you can go to with articles or items released uh, weekly that correspond with the episode of the show that we're on. And it adds extra information. If you're curious about something that happened in this episode or even past episodes, there's often information, little nuggets in these articles that are anywhere from one to four pages long um, that, that provide answers or at least coloration of, of the world and give it more depth and character. It is called PDpedia um, because it is basically from the desk of Special Agent Dale Petey, the FBI agent we see in the show who is uh, in Tulsa with Laurie Blake. Petey is his last name? Petey is his last name. I did it's- not know that. I don't think I knew that until I read the PDpedia because I thought, what a silly name. But yeah. uh, but no, that's his surname, Sir Petey. <laughs> Sir Petey. I feel like Lori Blake calling him Petey is intentionally like, you know, make kind of picking on him, making fun of him just by using his last name instead of because <laughs> she doesn't use it in a way like Agent Petey. She's like Petey. <laughs> but it almost seems more demeaning if his first name is Peter. And she's calling him Petey. If it's his last name, it's it's different to me. It's just her keeping him at arm's length with like a, a more formal addressing, but it still sounds silly. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good way of looking at it. To me, it has made him seem like a less consequential character. And that's funny how a name can do that. It, it absolutely is. Uh, you know, his demeanor in general. I really like him because he doesn't command respect uh, until she crosses this line with him where she... You know, he says, don't treat me like a fan. And, um, you know, you find out he's got a PhD in history. These are small things that don't really influence 
the story of the show, but I, uh, as, as someone who also studied history, I appreciate that. I think he's kind of the everyman that like a, like a common viewer who might identify as like a nerd or just like a regular person. Yeah. And plus you having a history degree gives you a special analog with him where you're like, yeah, that's me. That's, that, yeah, that's me I, in that show. I'm so partial to him. I like him so much. So, but in, in true fashion, I mean, the, whoever's behind the PDpedia, uh, at, at HBO uh, has done great work with it. The If you have written college papers, you can go read that thing and really appreciate the level of, of writing that they throw together on these articles. It's um it's really well done. Yeah. Um, and, and so, so these are like literally like th- three or four articles every week that are like multiple pages long. And they're, they're representations of all sorts of things within the world. Like yeah. uh, a letter from uh, one you sent me was like a letter from, uh, Judd Crawford's descendant to uh, Senator Keene's descent or um, ancestor. Um, and, uh, yeah, Senator. yeah. There's, there's, yeah. They'll range from items from the desk of Dale Peaty himself, like FBI memos to medical reports to um, snippets of newspaper articles. Uh, the New Frontiersman is a, a, a publication in in the book and the show that the, it Rorschach read it a lot in the eighties. Yeah, from the comic, yeah. It's known as an extreme uh, right-wing uh, publication, and, like, they did it, they put a, you know, a little article from it in the PDpedia. It's it's really well-written, really believable, falls wonderfully and neatly into the, the canon of the world. So sometimes it's a, it's a formal document, sometimes it's like a newspaper clipping. It's really well done and augments the, the show really well. Well, it's beautiful, too, and I, I'm sure you know this, but, yeah, the... Uh the comic book is the same way you've got a comic book, like a normal 21 page comic book. And then you have four, three to five pages of materials just like this. And it's so cool that they're doing that for the show. I can't even, I could not agree more. And I don't know if Lind, if, if I don't even know how to pronounce his name, Lindelof Lindelof, was, was responsible for that idea or if someone brought it to them, but I agree with you. The fact that they're doing it at all, uh, I'm sure pleases purists of the original content. And, and I like it a lot. Yeah, absolutely. If we get an extra season of this show, and if we do the, continue this podcast, next time we will pay much closer attention and have regular uh, calls out to the PDpedia because it's it's obviously really important and would have been better to have weaved through this entire season of podcasting. I think. Uh, in retrospect, I absolutely agree. It's at first it seemed like a fun little thing to chew on in between episodes. But you and I have come to find uh, through stuff that I have found in it that it answers questions that we have had about the episodes themselves. Yeah. And I'll get, I'll get into a couple of them. But the fact that it rewards the reader with uh, with information that ties things together is is pretty significant. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's dive right in then to those things. Uh, I, 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 you, I said, uh, if you could, to bring some like just big takeaways. Like, what are the what are the things that you've learned from the PDpedia that we should know as watchers of Watchmen. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a couple that are, are just interesting colorations of the world that the Watchmen takes place in, but I'll also give you a few that, that connect some dots you and I have had. The first one from episode one is called The Computer and You, and it is a document from um, a, a law enforcement official to, to underlings in the department about getting acquainted with the the this new technology they have before them. And, and this is in 2019. This is modern day. They're just now getting computers. They are referring to electronic mail as L mail. It becomes quickly apparent to the, the reader that you're, you're in a, they're in a world different than we are in as far as technology is concerned. And you and I have discussed that a little bit. And I don't think until I read that, I really appreciated how different it was. Um, because the question that I posed to you that I think really shifted your perspective on the world is how many times have you seen a cell phone in this show? And the answer is zero. Yeah. I, I you've, you've gone back and rewatched everything now. So there is, that is the answer. There's zero. That right? is the answer. It's, and that's so easy to miss. Um, yeah. well, and I, I, I talked to you about this. Uh, so we're retreading ground. We've spoken about, but obviously not on cast, Yeah. but uh, one of the genius things about that is, detective shows because of the nature of mysteries and mm-hmm. the nature of having a character in danger they often remove the cell phones from the situation anyway by having uh you know the the cell phone doesn't work because the bars yeah. are there they drop their the, often the victim of a crime will drop their cell phone before they're attacked things mm-hmm. like that happen all the time so we're kind of trained 
by all these other procedural shows to not notice a lack of technology yeah. uh, be, or, or to, you know, have it removed from the situation so that we can go through these dangerous whatevers. Uh, and, and I love that they're sort of playing with that trope uh, and using the, 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 the events that happen with the squid drop in New York to cause everyone to become Luddites and just everyone to fear technology, not just the teleportation technology, but all technology. Yeah. And, what, what Matt just said is a, a really good point. Uh, that's actually f- an excerpt from that article, the very first article on the PDpedia. The, the director of this uh, law enforcement office is talking about the history of the department. And he said, I was there in 84 when we first got our first computer. And this guy in the office uh, is the only one that took it seriously. And in six months, he was our boss. Uh, and then he says, then the squid dropped. New technology seemed the most likely cause for whatever opened the door that allowed such a horrific monster to pass through it. Uh, the computer program was junked by Christmas, and that was the end of that. Back to the Stone Age. He then says the computers, the phones, the towers that would have provided communications without wires, we destroyed it all, hoping it would save us. And yet, baby cephalopods still ran from the sky. Our fear of technology was for naught. So it, it very plainly states that it is a cause and effect. The squid drop, like you said, caused them to become Luddites, caused them to fear technological advancement and scrap all of it. And they, they literally diverged from the path that, uh, that, that we're on. And it's an important distinction to make that, it, that, that where they are is not less or more advanced, uh, much in the way that Manhattan is, uh, is trying to get people to see, or, or at least they're using Manhattan to show the viewer that time isn't, con- isn't confined to a, a linear uh, path. It's, it's, you know, branches and whatnot. Uh, it's literally like their technology branched off in the eighties and took a different route. Thanks to Manhattan and people like Adrian Veidt, you see in the show and in the book, they were responsible for technologies that led to, uh, changes that are really subtly manifest in the show. Uh, I, I posed the cell phone question to you. And since then I've, I've made another realization. How many gas stations do you see? Zero. That's because all their cars are electric. Yeah. Now that I know, uh, if you pay attention, you hear or you don't hear cars as they're right. driving in and out of scenes. Every time it sounds that it has that little zoom noise mm-hmm. of an electric car. I that, noticed that in the first episode. I was like, dang, that's great. That's a great nod to the comic. And I didn't realize how deep that nod went. Well, and I'll tell you another a little thing um, that... that uh, adds nuance to that nod is that they're pulling, I think Lori Blake, I'm not sure who is pulling into a parking spot somewhere. And uh, at the end of each parking spot along the sidewalk are charging what look stations, right? right. They look yeah. like parking meters, but they're charging stations for the vehicles. And that's just super cool to me. Yeah, I know. And, and that's the one I noticed, uh, but I did not. Well, and, and I had, I had no reason to think they wouldn't have cell phones, but that's, that's where this PDP is so strong. It, it you know, you didn't have to know that to enjoy this show. No, not at all. But once you know it, it colors it in a completely different way. Yeah. It makes you feel differently about these characters in this world. It makes it feel a little more foreign to you. Uh-huh. Um, and and it, yeah, it's, it's neat, man. And, and, and you don't expect it because Manhattan and, uh, you know, Adrian had advanced technology so much. You really, it's just a cool, it's just a really cool touch. Great job, yeah. guys. Great job. <laughs> Great job. These people don't have wireless technology outside of radio band transmission. All their cars are electric. It's the kind of care that really makes the world uh, the show is set in feel like eerily ir- different in ways that don't hit you over the head, but still have impact. I just love that. Yeah, that's cool, man. Well, what else you got? What's a, What's another cool touch? So the show opens with um, a young Will. We come to find it's uh, young Will Reeves watching a movie called Trust in the Law. Now, this is really interesting because this is a fake film, but uh, according to the Pedipedia, uh, it was made by somebody who is actually a historically real director. Um, let me get his name. But uh, it it's a, it's a real historical figure that made films uh, at that same time, time period. Um, Oscar Michaud is the name. And if you, I mean, I've Googled and, and wikied every name in every article of the PDpedia because I don't know what's real and what's not. And that is super <laughs> cool to me. Yeah. And man. I've come to find that they are indelibly woven together. The fact and the fiction are, are you really have to separate them with a fine tooth comb. So Bass Reeves, the protagonist in the film that the will is watching is a real historical figure. That was a real person. He was the first black deputy U S marshal. 
that's crazy. Yeah. Because you got a real historical figure and a real director in a fake film <laughs> being observed. So, so the director, uh, the historical director from the twenties is, a, was a real person from the twenties. Yes. But that obviously isn't the actual film they made. Right. Well, he made lots of films. Trust in the Law, the one that is being shown in Watchmen, was not a real film that was made. Okay. But the PDPedia article that references him talks about other films that he made that are real films. So it, it's easy to get confused. They did a great job with that. Wow. Wow. Uh, okay. So, man, I want. So, so, one thing I always think about when I'm hearing about the history of Watchmen is mm-hmm. so y- you have the whole divergent timelines theory. <laughs> Where like something happens and it diverges the timeline to right. to be different, and so I always kind of thought that uh, the rise of heroes, and especially the rise of Doctor Manhattan, but the rise of heroes in general, I guess that that alley with Will Reeves, angry young Will Reeves, throwing on the hood and fighting, like that was the earliest departure point that I knew about from our timeline. And I, and I've been I, that's something I've been thinking about. Like I don't even think I've talked about it on the cast, but I, I love to think about that kind of stuff. Uh, kind of like the the Back to the Future thing. When did Biff, you know, go back with his almanac and change things? I, I don't want to take you off your point, but I would like to point out the technicality that earlier than that, you've got the Tulsa Massacre of nineteen twenty one. That would be the first divergence we know about from our timeline. Well, no, that's real. Oh, is it? Yeah. That's I have a, a history event. degree, people. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. Sorry. No, no, no. It's 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 so understandable. We, me, me, and a, uh, me and Jason have both been decrying the fact that we had no idea that was real. Apparently, I didn't know that was real. 1921 Tulsa. I, I'm surprised, not because you didn't know it from before. I'm surprised you didn't find that in your research <laughs> of Watchmen. <laughs> Talk that, about not seeing the forest for the trees. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, I I listened to um. Uh, fat man on batman and in the last few weeks uh kevin smith has been out and his um his co-host does episodes they call black man on batman because he's a black man um, <laughs> sure no i and, get it uh, his episodes uh he he tends to really like to talk about sort of black culture and have black guests and okay um, that's and, cool and one of the th- one of the first things they had the first black man on batman this season was talking about Watchmen, and they were like this is the blackest show on television like, yeah. and they were talking about the fact that the um 1921 uh tulsa race massacre was a real thing and how no one knows about it i mean uh, and apparently what the story goes that uh apparently tulsa was a very rich area it was known as black wall street apparently Mm -hmm. yeah they say that in the show yeah apparently that's real and in uh in, in 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 1921 basically the kkk got angry because of the you know how well the city was doing and they basically destroyed and looted the city of all of its wealth and destroyed a pocket of like african-american wealth that was beginning as early as the 20s i you know it's what what does it say about me but what does it say about i'll go ahead and say like culture yeah that like you said in all of this i've discovered so much about what's real and what wasn't um but you know even somebody studied in history i didn't know that was a real thing that's a part of america that's part of black history that's part of american history that I wish I had known about, had found, had been taught. I'm totally with you. And I think that's something the show is intentionally pointing out. I yeah, think, I think absolutely. The show is trying to bring light to the fact that that's a real thing. And that's a part <laughs> of black history we don't, we don't talk about. That just made the show more important to me in these moments. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, 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 it's insane. And to open the show with that and, and that yeah. be the first thing you see is, is so important. Um, any, any, my, my, what, yeah, th- th- this is way more important conversation, but getting back to my timeline theory. Uh, yeah, yeah, sorry. As far as I can tell, if that's the case, that event of this movie, Trust in the Law, is the earliest event that we have at least I've heard of yet, of a divergence in the timeline. And what's interesting about it is it draws a direct correlation to the events that happen with the hood. Mm-hmm. Which draws direct correlation to all of the other events in 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 Watchmen. So have, yeah, that's crazy. What's really cool about that, and I think of as a story writer, if I was writing this thing, you're kind of telling a very subtle point about the power of story. Yeah, without a doubt. 
You know, like a movie was made in the twenties that inspired a man to change the entire world. Yeah. Now, whether he changed it in a good way or a bad way, we're going to see. <laughs> well, <laughs> and, and that, that's a happens. big argument. I mean, to this day, and has been for decades about the character of Rorschach and the use of the word hero uh, instead of vigilantes. You know, people, uh, a lot of people are reluctant to uh, defend the, um, the act of somebody hiding behind the veil of anonymity and taking the law into their own hands based on their own personal code. Um, like you said, whether it's for good or for bad, that's, that's up for debate by any individual who should have that power. Absolutely. Show plays with those blurred lines a lot. I mean, with, with authority, with morals, uh, the book, you know, the, the comic did too. Um, but I mean, you know, what, what's the first thing? First off, we've got a, a, a black female protagonist in an action role, which is awesome. I mean, you've got Angela, but what do we see her do? We see her, you know, kick somebody's door in, throw them in the trunk of her car and, you know, take them in for interrogation it's immediately throwing that in your face going, okay, these are the people we're rooting for, but are they good people? Are their actions good? How do we define them? I love that. Yeah. I mean, in Watchmen, this is something we talk about a lot on the podcast is Watchmen's always been about gray morals. One of the actual failings that me and Jason have been talking about on the show, which is a rarity, there's almost none. Uh, and I don't think it's going to be a failing in the end. I think there's going to be some twist to it is yeah. the sort of thin nature of the seventh Calvary. Yeah, because every other character in Watchmen, and I mean every other character, is very human and not driven by a simple mustache twirling thing. Yeah. Um, and I feel at like right now this shows uh, sort of I wouldn't I wouldn't even call them the main villain. I think they're almost just a side uh, side argument because I think the real argument is going to come down between our our main characters. But yeah, the seventh Calvary is this, uh, is exists because of racism and seems to be driven by this character who wants the power of a God. Like that seems so mustache twirly because in, in, yeah. in the comic books, uh, you've got, uh, obviously all of your main characters are, sorry, I just mistakenly clicked on something in the PDpedia while I was talking and I saw the extra dimensional anxiety and you flyer mm -hmm. and it has a cat looking at himself in a reflection. All right. I, I know. I love it. I'm going to have to look at that later. Uh, sorry. I got, got thrown off. Um, anyway, I, I think that the seven K I really hope seven, the seven K have some sort of deeper thing happening. I think that keen search for power is deeper and and maybe not maybe maybe it's okay that there's just racists in this world who do racist thing because that's a very real thing that's what i was about to say it's are they reduced to just a literary mechanism that isn't going to be as compelling or interesting as the other things in the show or or should we look at it through that lens and say look this is this is a, a correlative effect i mean this is the product of real hate and this is just it doesn't go away it's it's always in the way it you know it endangers True. people's lives so there there is that i wish it was more interesting but i also wish racists uh, didn't exist <laughs> yes so. and and it's a good point we just talked about how the tulsa race massacre is a real thing and that uh it's great that they included that if you uh, are trying to build this story on the tensions in society right now but you don't have some people that are just in it for the racism uh, maybe you are leaving something important out. And, yeah. and the one thing that is in the original comic, kind of the MacGuffin, uh, which I think that the 7K sort of represent, 7K represent a tension in society uh, that they're trying to solve. The Watchmen, are, are, our, current, our current group of protagonists are sort of trying to get at. Yeah. Um, and in the original story, it was the Russians versus the United States. And sure. I, I don't even think the Russians are the bad guys in that. I think that if you read the comic, I think that Nixon and his people and the Russians are all kind of these people, these politicians who are driving at Armageddon are the villains. And I guess, I guess the, the 7K could represent that sort of tension. Yeah. Maybe it's not as different as I kind of feel about it. I just want, I guess I kept wanting something different, but I, I, again, that. I don't think that they're going to be the main villain. I think if anything, Keen is, and Keen is just a man seeking power, which is not as mustache twirly. At least it's somebody who wants something, you know, it's somebody who wants something. And in a world full, like that is becoming increasingly more bizarre as the show reveals more and more of what's going on. Seven K kind of roots it in, in, uh, you know, a regrettable, but relatable real thing. Yeah. Like we can relate to people like that existing, um, uh, you know, 
and it's not it's not a good thing, but it's uh, it's a familiar thing. So yeah, absolutely. And you know they're putting these these masks on just like Rorschach had, and I mean the show and the masks, uh, just the the cop in episode six saying the uniform a man wears changes him, and you seeing that throughout the show uh, is a super interesting. Um, almost introspective exercise that that the viewer could take on if they wanted to internalize it uh, themselves. But I mean, even Angela is doing that when she takes Will's nostalgia. Uh, It's there's a, there's something I I, I rewatched recently, which is the stupid, uh, the the purposefully stupid, the intentionally stupid American hero story and how it's sensationalized on the, on the, on Watchmen on the show. Yeah. And the fictionalized sensationalized hooded justice in it is, uh, Clearly, you know, a, a product of of uh, just pomp story writing. And, and Dale Petey rips the guy that makes that thing apart in the Petypedia. You should read it. It's really fun. I, w- I absolutely will. He, um, you know, when he saves the, the shop in the show and the little shop owner asks, who are you? He goes into this speech that uh, if you listen back to and think about Will and Angela and the parallels of their lives is fantastic he says when i was little every time i looked in the mirror i saw a stranger staring back at me and he was very very angry obviously will after the tulsa massacre obviously angela after her parents were killed both could be applied to that he says what could i do with all this anger maybe i could uh help him hide it i never felt comfortable in my own skin which could easily be said of will and pre-civil rights america up to now and angela in vietnam she even admits to her grandmother that there aren't many people there that look like her um, and the American hero story hood of justice says, so I made a new one. And when I slipped it on, he and I became one, which could be will about hooded justice. It could be Angela about sister night. It could be Angela about will after she takes his nostalgia. Mm. I, I and like then, that. then the, the show says his anger became mine as, as did his thirst for justice. Angela and will are both cops turned masked vigilantes. I mean, and of course, uh, Angela is going to feel Will's thirst for justice. And, and, and she remembers, he has his experiences and feels what he feels. So it's only going to compound the things she already feels and the things that already drive her. Mm-hmm. Um, and she did not finish her treatment. Uh, so I think there's still a good bit of Will kicking around inside of her. His memories are not fully separated from her even now. Yeah. So, so that little monologue that they put in American hero story, uh, could be written off as just like silly pomp sensationalized TV. Uh, but it's a nugget that relates intimately to these two characters. And he says, so who am I? If I knew that I wouldn't be wearing a mask. I mean, it's great. It really is. Mm, Oh, that's good. I, I, I fully agree with you. I think there, there's a lot of deliberate stuff going on in those monologues. That's actually where I, in episode two, I think it was, uh, they have a monologue about him when he kills the strong man. And yeah, the strong Rolf man, Mueller. And it says something about, you know, uh, uh, you'll find out who I am in the last reel or something like that. And that yeah. was when I called that he was William. Because yeah. I was like, he's going to be someone in the story. Like, I don't think <laughs> when that... you told me that. And I was like, that's crazy. And then it was... <laughs> I, I I didn't I knew it was going to be someone in the story because of the way that monologue was written. I knew that they weren't wasting a moment by having that long monologue. Yeah. And when he, it's so much fun because it's so um, it, it's chewing scenery. I guess is the is the is the best term for it in acting when you like are just really eating it up and like he he's eating it up in a way that you couldn't do on this show. But you can on American Hero Story, you know. Yeah, uh, and, yeah, and he, absolutely. He can ham it up. It's almost like it's almost like '60s Batman, like really cheesy, like or I guess at least '90, '89 Batman, where he's just having this big monologue about, "Well, I was a boy." You know, no one's going to do that on this yeah. show. But having that no. hooded justice say it is genius. It's such a clever way to yeah to to, to slip it in there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so so I mean. Um, we kind of got off on uh, on that uh, after talking about trust in the law, but um, but that kind of blurred that. Are we still on that point? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it ties into lines being blurred about fact and fiction, history and real. Um, and those lines between um, who you are before and after you put the mask on, more blurred lines all through the show, more gray area. 
Um, another week two document called Tulsa Police Chief Beard Slain on the PDPedia clarifies something that I wondered. It's a newspaper clipping um, conjecturing about the fate of Judd Crawford. Um, but it does say in there, uh, Crawford did not conceal his face per DOPA caveats requiring transparency from police department leadership. I always wondered why he didn't have a mask on. It yeah, was mandated that. that he didn't. Okay. Yeah. I just always thought he was just like somehow making a stance or making leadership decisions or something like it. It did state that he was a popular figure in town. And obviously we know now that his family um, has, has a, a dynasty in Tulsa, but no, it's an actual requirement of DOPA that he uh, remained transparent. That's, that's interesting. Yep. And um, also in that article, uh, therein lies the only time the number of survivors of the white Knight is explicitly stated. We've always heard it had a few survivors or a couple survivors. The article asserts that Mr. Crawford was one of three survivors of a deadly attack on Christmas Eve of 2016 by masked members of the 7th Gallery. And knowing what we know now after his wife's confession to Lori, uh, right before she captured her, that the White Knight was part of their plan to get Keen to the White House, uh, I think it's safe to assume Judd was in on the White Knight. Um, I also assume angela wasn't intended to survive it yeah i don't think that i definitely don't think so and surely wouldn't have if not for the supernatural reflexive actions of her super husband <laughs> unless i mean what's the seven k's plan uh, well hmm man i am i'm, so, I'm, I'm, I'm that, really i'm really here's here's what i'm here's what i'm getting at how did did they know manhattan was there Right, right. That I was just about to say, that's another rabbit hole we just found that we could go down, which is one of the delicious things about this show is that never occurred to us until now. I don't right. know if the 7K knew that Manhattan was Calvin. Uh, when did Keen come up with the plan to become a god? Well, and uh, Crawford's widow says to Laurie in that same confession before she trapped Dorzer, uh, then something she said that was the plan initially, re referring to Laurie's assertion that uh, Keem was on his way to the White House. And then she says, but then something extraordinary happened, and the White House seemed like small potatoes. We don't know what something extraordinary was. We don't know what that is. We don't know when that happened. You know what I bet it was? The White Knight. I bet they saw Manhattan's power come out. Or so, someone oh, was witness to that. I wonder if you're right. Oh man! Wow! That's the if that's the thing. case, then that's great. That's a fantastic idea. Um, yeah. Well, man. anyway, to to the original point, apparently there were three survivors of the White Knight. We know one was Angela. We know one was Judd. We still don't know who the third one was. Maybe that third one is the tie-in there. Yeah. I don't know if it's been nagging at my mind. I don't know if it's uh, going to matter at all, be of any significance to the story, or if it's just a random detail. But um, I like that. That, uh, you know, one of the PDPD articles uh, clarified how many survivors there were. Yeah, and my first initial thought was it would be Looking Glass, but you told me. It says specifically he was not a cop before. Yeah, he told Laurie that he uh, he didn't join the force until after the White Knight. Okay. That, oh, wait, that was in the show. God, mm -hmm. It's all mixed together for me. You've got another article uh, called Four Letters. And again, uh, taking a different format. It's not an FBI article. It's not a newspaper clipping. It's an actual letter that was... Uh, written and I guess somehow entered into FBI evidence or custody. Uh, it was written in 1955 from Keene's father addressed to Sheriff Crawford, who we can presume to be Dale Dixon Crawford, the, uh, the grandfather of, of Judd Crawford, the who show's we see in episode one chief. Uh, in a picture. Uh, yeah, we can. Yeah, that black and white photo that it zooms in on, we can now assume to be a young Judd Crawford and his grandfather, Sheriff Crawford, who's uh, who's the original owner of that that the clan uh, guys that Judd had in the in the closet. Yeah, some of this shit and, is so satisfying because um, I did in our first podcast call that that was his grandfather and that the reason William killed him was because of the of the Tulsa race massacre. <laughs> Which yeah. still isn't confirmed, but I, as soon as we watched that first episode, I was like, oh, well, they open with the Tulsa Race Massacre, and then they show him sitting with his grandfather on his knee, who was, you know, of da 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 I was like, it's got to be. It's got to be his grandfather was responsible. If that's not why, it's we're led there so far, and it's at least a satisfying explanation for now. Yeah, for so sure. So, that, that's still think that's a good call. But um, with this document, this letter, again, history is woven into it. Uh, it's about a real painting 
that that I I was like I told you have you ever heard of uh, feats of Comanche horsemanship? And did you know that was a real painting? I I didn't. You didn't. Um, done by an actual historical figure, American painter George Catlin. This was a real person. Um, and Keane Senior explains in this letter that it's tradition for this painting, which is zoomed in on in the show when um, when Angela is leaving the Crawfords. After she discovers what's in Judd's closet, she leaves and then it zooms in real close, real deliberately on this painting. In this letter, you see that this painting is traditionally bequeathed by an outgoing Cyclops leader to an incoming one. Wow. And you see that that Keen Sr. is bequeathing this to Crawford's, to Judd's granddad. And, and that was and, 1950s. So 19, 1955. So I'm guessing the, then Cyclops is actually responsible somewhat for the Tulsa race massacre. Oh, me too. Yeah. And I just realized 1955 is also the same year that Hooded Justice retired and refused to reveal his identity to a senator and, uh, and you know, went off the radar. So that's interesting. I don't know if there's any correlation there. To a senator, do we know? What's the, what's the correlation with the senator? I don't know the story. Yeah, it just said that in 1955, he was supposed to uh, take off his mask and reveal his identity uh, to uh, one of his senators. I don't know if that means from the state he was from or what. I don't know that it ever explains that. I'll have to go look at that, but I don't think it does. Hmm. I think that was just protocol. Yeah. They made me like Judd so much in the first episode. Oh, he was great. I still want to believe that he wasn't a part of Cyclops. It was, I, yeah, me too. Between Don Johnson's acting and the writing of that character and him singing at the table, they did everything right to make you love that character. His apparent love for Angela. Oh, yeah. It seems very earnest and very sincere. And even him visiting uh, Officer Sutton's wife, the, the, the cop that we see shot at, by the cavalry member in the very beginning of the show, when Judd leaves the theater... And even goes to the hospital. He asks Looking Glass if they're running background checks on everyone who's seen his face. But there's he's looking at the officer in a very earnest and convincing way. I mean, I don't think... I think Judd cared for these people. I think so, too. Which makes me think that it's possible that um, his wife was in on it. She says we. And it makes me wonder if his wife is in on it and... Keen and, and was working with Keen and maybe Ooh. even his wife as a part of Cyclops married him to control him or something like that. Like I, that's I would, a great theory. I'd love for that to happen at the end, but there's, there's so much fucking to do left in this show. Yeah. You, people like you and I are not going to be satisfied uh, as far as all these, we're not going to have all these inquiries satisfied by that episode. We will, they'll probably wrap up a lot of them. Right. But better. The, the little thing we're talking about right now is, pro, you know, I, everything we pontificate on can't be on their radar and on their to-do list. I, I agree that everything can't, but I think Judd's death is an important one. Not only I agree. It, it's the it's the kickoff of the show. It's also, I mean, it, he's the analog for the comedian in the comic book. There's a death at the beginning. Like, he literally has the blood drop fall on his sheriff badge. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that something is, we're going to learn something about Judd's death. Well, and what you just proposed about his wife, June, I think her name is June, June Crawford, working with um, uh, Cyclops. Let's not forget, it's, an, it's a good time to remind people she was the campaign manager for Keene's Senate campaign. That's right. So she's got a, a close political tie with Keene and worked with him and probably, you know, they may have shared information that Judd wasn't privy to. So that's a good point. That's yeah. a good good possible thing so little information like like uh like the painting being passed down it doesn't blow the the doors off of any secluded plot points but it does solidify for us the involvement in cyclops of both senior keen and the crawford families for multiple generations so that's that's satisfying yeah. now i read that i read that article now they do they specifically mention that it's cyclops in the article, in in the no, letter? but at the no, but at the very bottom next to Keen's signature is that eye, that Cyclops eye. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Ah, it's cool. <laughs> yeah, he never says it. He never says it in the letter. That is so effing cool, yeah. man. 
Yeah, and, I'm looking um, at it. I'm looking at it. I thought it looks like a compass rose, but you're right. It is. It's the Cyclops eye. Mm-hmm. Which I just noticed looks like a cy- looks like a compass looks like rose. A compass rose. <laughs> which makes me think there's some uh, special significance to that. Every, I feel like everything in the show so far is significant, and the that, amount of care that has gone into this show is just insane. It's a double-edged sword because it makes me feel like a crazy person wearing a tinfoil hat because anything I suspect to be a tie-in. I'm like, well, that panned out, so this might be true, too. So I just mm-hmm. feel like any rabbit hole is worth going down, and it just it makes me restless. And, and let me just bring up one point from the PDpedia. Anything that has a all of this deep continuity and character work being built in the background, but also has a detailed schematic of Lori Blake's Dr. Manhattan dildo... <laughs> <laughs> I have important questions about the dildo. I don't think it's so easily written off. Oh, gosh. Please explain. Please explain this. All right. Let me bring it up. I'm I'm looking at it right now. And yes. So as I said, there's a complete schematic for the the dildo. For, For our listeners, in case you forgot, Lori Blake carries around with her in a silver briefcase, a Manhattan based blue dildo. There's a schematic for this on the Pedipedia in, a, in an article uh, entitled Excalibur Design. Uh, but if you look closely at it, uh, you know, there's things in there called magnetic pickup, subharmonic resonator, uh, Faraday shielding, lithium uh, transducer. And, mm-hmm. you know, we don't know what of this technology could have been uh, manufactured by or via Manhattan, and what if it could have been just good old-fashioned regular human technology uh, produced by or before Merlin Corp? And uh, Merlin Corp is the company that made this thing, which is another interesting point. Merlin See, Corp. I haven't is, even heard of Merlin Corp. Help me out here. Merlin Corp. Um, is Dan Drayberg is Night Owl? Oh wow. And so he made a model of the penis of the guy who he took the girlfriend of, I guess. <laughs> uh, well, that's a great segue into the the only other article for that week is a United States FBI interrogation transcription from when Laurie Blake was presumably uh, apprehended. She was a masked vigilante, as we all know, uh, under the uh, the guise of both Silk Spectre and later on the comedian. Uh, a play, of course, on her father's moniker, but she gets captured, and there's a FBI interrogation from 1995 uh, in that next article, and um, it's really satisfying because it explains to us how she went from being a masked vigilante to end up on an anti-vigilante task force as a member of the FBI. That's cool. I'm blown away by the fact that, that she was the comedian, like that she became the comedian at some point. Yeah, how crazy we, is that? We know that she sort of resolved her feelings about her father mm-hmm. in the But she in, eventually in Well, we know now that she took his last name. She's Lori Blake. That's true. Yeah. Oh man. When she when I first saw her in the trailer for episode three, I was like, Yes. Fuck yes. Yeah. That's crazy. But so okay. In the in this interrogation, uh let me actually look at it because I want to do it justice. At some point her and Dreyberg come up. Uh, when they're asking about him, she says uh, they didn't work out because he wanted kids and I wanted guns. And uh, the agent says, if I can ask, you seem to have unlimited resources for these operations. How are you funded? She says, through Merlin Corp. The agent says, Merlin, like the wizard? And she says, yes, like the fucking wizard. It's a tech outfit. They do weapon and airship design for state and local law enforcement. The agent says, I'm not following. She says, I noticed. He says, why would a company that provides tech to law enforcement fund you and Dreyberg? She says, because Dreyberg is the company, dipshit. Have you ever wondered why the cops fly owl ships? That's great. So that, I mean, that does blow the doors off of something I've wondered about. Why the hell were Judd and Pirate Jenny in an owl ship? You were like, do you think that's the same one that, uh, that Night Owl used? Now yeah. we know it's not. He's just manufacturing them. In the first episode, I uh, because, because they were... Um, at the end of the comic book, they're uh, gosh fugitives, and I I would I speculated that Judd might have been Dan Dryberg 
I thought I, that that was my first first initial assumption about after seeing the owl ship. Yeah, no, and why wouldn't that have been a perfectly reasonable assumption uh, to make? But once again, we've got a clarification from the Pedipedia that clarifies what Merlin Corp was, and then alongside it, the same week, a, a, a draft of an item patented by Merlin Corp, um, and she actually references that as well. Mm. Also, um, I'm looking at the Merlin Corp logo and noticing that it has a distinct V above it, which makes me connect oh, it to Vite. Uh, yeah. I wonder. Right above the Merlin Corp logo is a big V um, that, and it also has a dot at the bottom, which now I'm seeing might, could be kind of an owl shape. I don't know. Interesting. I'll have to look at that. I was pulling up. When the agents asked her what was in her briefcase in 1995, I don't know if it's the same case she carries around now. She says it's Dr. Manhattan Dick. It's Dr. Manhattan's Dick. And the agent, the transcript says dot, 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 what? <laughs> and uh, she says a big blue dick is inside the case and balls <laughs> too. And uh, we can go ahead and point out that the balls are actually the battery powering for it. So that's just ingenious design. Well, but they're detachable. Um, How are they the battery powering for it? I guess you charge it with them. I don't know. I, I don't got, have one. It also has batteries in the shaft, Josh. Oh, well, see, this is this is high-end tech. I don't know. <laughs> it, it does um, say secondary. It says lithium transducer secondary. <laughs> there you go. And uh, she then, she, the agent says, are you joking? And she says, Dan was convinced I was still holding a candle for my ex, so he made me a big blue dildo as a fuck you. Literally. Oh wow! Oh, that's so that's so sad and different than I was expecting it. I kind Me of too. imagined them working together on it or being like a joke. Well, you and I had had conjecture about what his feelings about that were. If if he was the one who ran this company that made it, what the hell does that mean? And there you go. That's really weirdly satisfying to know information about it. Oh man. Um, okay, we've spent a lot of time on the uh, the big blue penis uh, dildo schematic so what 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 else did you have in your list of things to bring up because i know we're not even halfway through the pdpedia here no well we're not gonna we're not gonna pick over all of it but um that actually all joking aside that that fbi transcript is one thing i wanted to bring up a because it tells us how laurie went from being a masked vigilante to working for the fbi yeah b because it reveals a little bit about the past with her and dan and c because these guys are pressing her and trying to get information out of her. And she says, if you don't let me walk, I might have to talk. And the agent says, talk about what? She then says, at the end of this transcript, tell your boss to tell his boss to tell his boss to tell Gatsby, which is her talking about Robert Redford, because he played the great Gatsby, that Laurie Jaspezik knows what really happened on 11-2. I'll wait. End of transcript. And all of a sudden, after that, she's in the FBI. Wow. So, that's really important. Uh, since she ends up working with the FBI, we can assume, assume that she does, in fact, know those details and that proving this to the president or someone in his employee lands her that position. So, that's really compelling. Wow. And that dropped after episode four? Five, four? Um... Or after episode three, I'm, I'm curious about the time. I'm curious if we knew that in the in the PDpedia before we knew that Redford had that information in um, in episode five, where uh, oh, where we learn it through Looking Glass. That's a great point. I hadn't thought about that. That was in so that happened in 1995. Redford got that video from Vite in '92 because Vite is congratulating him on his inauguration as president. It's interesting that I, I wonder. I wonder how the show revealed that. If it actually revealed that in the PDpedia, that's kind of cool. Uh, but also, I wonder how revealed Lori Blake, what? Uh, the fact that Redford knows everything, knows what oh. happened on eleven two, because uh, it, it's it looks like if, if I'm if I'm if the PDpedia, it looks like that came out the week after episode three, which means that that yeah. was before. Before we knew in episode five that that Redford knew, which I just think is kind of a neat. It's That's just neat true. how much that you learn in the PDPD if you pay attention. That would have come out, <clears throat> excuse me, the week that episode four aired. So you're right. That would have come out before we knew that Redford saw that tape that Vite had made. You're absolutely right. Uh, but also it makes me wonder how Lori Blake knows that Redford knows. Yeah, me too. Because 
as we know at the end of Watchmen, um, the the of the couple people present present president present at <laughs> Karnak when Vite reveals to them what he had done. I mean, you've got Rorschach and you've got um, Manhattan. Was anyone else there? Was Dreiberg uh, wasn't there, was he? Yeah, Dreiberg was there. He was there. So yeah. I guess that's how she knows. Wait, you mean how she knows which thing? Sorry, she knows about Eleven too because she was there as well. They were all four. They were all there. Were they all Karnak. there? It's been yeah. a minute. So I should no, have no, watched no, yeah. the movie. Okay. Yeah. Well, then the movie the movie is really satisfying. It's almost shot for shot the comic except for the squid. So, like with the exception of the squid, if you watch the movie, you pretty <clears> much <throat> are reading the comic book except for the squid. And they also drop out the uh, newspaper plot line. A lot, yeah. and they drop out the Black Freighter stuff, which gotcha. is, is similar to these uh, supplementary materials in that they're they're mostly tone setting. So you, but if you just kind of want to get the story, the theatrical release of the movie is pretty solid for it. As an aside, one of the hotels uh, in the show is called the Black Freighter. So just there you go. Oh, uh, that's awesome. That's I missed. I didn't see that. It's on the on the screen. Yeah, there. Uh, it's it's when it's actually the same scene that the car is pulling in in front of the electric chargers uh, that I think is Laurie Blake. It's uh, the camera's panning down to follow the car, so it's just in the edge of the shot. But the sign, the elevated sign, says Black Freighter. Wow, why would you name your hotel after that? <laughs> Maybe it's not the hotel. It's a, it's got to be though. It's the sign. I don't know. It's a sign in the show, and it's really satisfying as a little nugget. Um, but yeah, so to your point. If we found that out before we knew what Will saw on the tape that Keen showed him, that's another really substantial use of the PDP, PDPedia as a vehicle to inform the viewer slash reader of what's going on ahead of time. Um, another time that happened was uh, an episode or two later, because there is an article on there called The Will of Nelson Gardner. And for those of you who don't remember, Nelson Gardner was Captain Metropolis who came to will reeves initially to try to get him to uh to join as hooded justice to join the Minutemen, and later on would not support him in his uh efforts to take down cyclops um it turns out nelson gardner was extremely um remorseful about the way he treated will and he said tell will that he was right about everything and that i shouldn't have treated him that way and uh, he leaves his entire estate to Will Reeves. So for any of you who have been wondering how Will has been living, if he, what kind of conditions he's been living in, if he's been comfortable, he's 105, for God's sake. It's not like, I mean, I don't know if Hooded <laughs> Justice had a 401k. Right. But, but Nelson Gardner was very well off um, and left everything to Will. And we, uh, we wonder whether or not Will accepted it uh, because there was a lot of uh, writing in that, a, a document from Nelson saying, if he doesn't accept, tell him this. And if he still refuses, tell him this. Um, so we weren't sure if he did, but well, we found out in the next episode that uh, when Manhattan, I guess episode eight, when Manhattan went to Will Reeves, he was in an estate with a giant door on it uh, that had a G on the front. So I mm -hmm. think he was living in Nelson Gardner's estate. Yeah. Um, I did So they didn't even mention that. I, I remember seeing that on the show and being like, oh, that's cool. That's a They never said PDP it in media. the show. They never said Will lives in the old gardener home. Um, uh, cannot believe that they didn't say that. And I I believe, if I'm not mistaken, and I may, and I may be, that the uh, in the flashbacks. Eh, wait, I'm, they might. They might have said that. They anyway, might have. I think in the flashbacks, that's the same home. If I'm not mistaken, the 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 flashbacks you see of the 50s of Will and he together. Oh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's the same home. It looked very similar, at least. That'd be really cool. I wonder. But yeah, for for people who've been wondering what Will's been up to for the past several decades, I mean, we we don't really know, but that document reveals to us that he was working at a movie theater in Harlem in 1975. Man, movie theaters are such a big thing for him. Well, yeah, and in the next week's PDPedia document entitled The Origin Story of Sister Knight, we read that uh, Agent PD discovered that Will Reeves bought that very same theater the following year, obviously with uh, the funds that he uh, was left from, from Gardner, uh, and he's been showing the movie Sister Knight every Sunday at midnight since 2017, which is the same year Angela Abar decided to take up the moniker as her masked persona. So he knows that. He, he We don't know when he went to Tulsa or what he knew about Angela in the 10 years since Manhattan visited him. But we know that in 2017, when she became sister Knight, he started showing that movie at that theater. We also know that will knows a lot about mesmerism and knows that 
Cyclops was using theaters to uh, to to mesmerize black audiences. Yeah, so, and uh, that he's updated the technology into a portable form. Right. So it, it's very possible in my mind that he, over that time period in Harlem, was experimenting with mesmerism. Yeah. So exactly. So the the fact that those documents offer all that information and don't explicitly state all that, but um, tell you he was working in a theater, tell you that he inherited Gardner's estate, tell you that he had been playing Sister Night at his theater, allows the the, uh, the viewer to connect these dots in a way that makes my mind explode and just just <laughs> just makes the PDPD that much cooler. And I wish I had been reading it since the first episode came out. I only really started reading it about halfway through and I just couldn't stop. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember sending it to you and you were like, oh yeah, I saw that existed. I hadn't checked it out. And then the next day you were like, okay, I read all of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what happened. <laughs> it was great. Yeah, so one of our listeners sent it in the very first week. And was like, oh, uh, they sent out some uh, some materials, but I, I didn't get the sense that they were going to be ongoing materials. I thought that they were just. I think the the way the listener had written in, they said, oh yeah, they sent this in to let you know what's happened since Watchmen or something like that. And I was like, okay, cool, I should check that out. And then I didn't. I think it would have been reasonable for both of us to assume that it would not have played so importantly as it has been. I mean, the information in there is absolutely substantial. It's not just. Uh, on the fringes or peripheral uh, depth. It's, it's facts that help the viewer tie it together and, and conjecture Uh, even this past week, for those of you that haven't looked, uh, if you don't want, want to know, I'm about to offer you information on the PDpedia that maybe will come into play in the finale. Um, We were given a document riddled with obscure details for us to ruminate over. Apparently there has been what is described as a calamity in green in Greenwood. It says Greenwood. So I assume it means the cultural center. Uh, we know that martial law is in effect in Tulsa and hazmat teams are collecting the remains of unidentified subjects, number one and number two, it says in the document. Um, and this is a document from, I believe it's from Agent Petey, from the desk of Agent Petey to, the, to his FBI colleagues. Um, and he says Agent Blake is still missing. So we know Is that the at document least, Fog Dancing? No. Yes, yes. It is called Fog Dancing. And the very first part of it is, is Petey describing these things. So we know, as readers slash viewers, at least from the time Laurie Blake is captured by June Crawford and, and Cyclops in Episode 7, to the time of this document, uh, Petey and company don't know where she is or if she's safe. And something happened at Greenwood, and martial law is in effect. So I, I imagine we'll see that happen at the beginning of next episode. And uh, that's just... It's, it's, it's so juicy and just makes me just... Uh, water at the mouth for what's to come. Oh, weird. I'm looking at it right now, and it's like the the conspicuous absence of redacted and redacted yeah. <laughs> give an indication as to the identities of the remains, but given the condition of DNA testing will re- be required. My, so what do, what are their remains? Is there blood? Is there there's not teeth? Is there did somebody get vaporized? Is, well, my my first thought is the morning after the calamity in Greenwood is uh, the calamity in Greenwood could be the fight we saw at the end of the end of the last episode. Could be what? I'm sorry. The fight. Yeah, 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 my bad. I'll I'll edit it so this is uh, smoother. Uh, it could be the fight at the end of the last episode. But it doesn't make sense. There would only be one uh, subjects one and two. Because there was Wait, a, what fight at the end of last episode? Uh, Refresh my memory. Manhattan blowing up all those dudes. He did that right outside uh, Angela's home. That wouldn't have been at Greenwood. Okay, I guess I don't know where. I don't know how big. I don't know if Greenwood is a neighborhood, and maybe she lives close to the cultural center. I don't know. Greenwood is the cultural center. Okay, gotcha. I, I guess I didn't know if it's the cultural center at Greenwood or something. I'm like pretty that. sure. The document just says in Greenwood, so the way that it, the syntax of the document reads, it does sound like it's a geographical location, but I haven't seen the show reference, or the PDpedia for that matter, reference any part of Tulsa as Greenwood proper since uh, the, the Tulsa Massacre. Okay. Oh, okay, so the Tulsa Massacre happened in Greenwood, is that? Correct. The uh, Yeah, at the beginning of the first episode, it explains that Greenwood was the area of Tulsa where black affluence was prospering and that was the that was the black wall street so my first theory i guess that comes to mind when when i hear that Mm -hmm. is that this document isn't shortly into the episode 
I bet this epi- this document is the is is after the show because really I do because um I think that which actually if, if that's true would would cause a lot of things to to not a lot of theories to not be true or to be true whatever um because the show began in that theater we know that the kids and William are at a theater they yeah they're at the Dreamland Theater which mm-hmm. i wonder if the Dreamland Theater is is the same theater that he was in as a child and uh, if, it is if, if the, okay it, if the show opened there and we know that William and some other main characters are there. We know how theaters have played a main role. Like, I feel like that theater might be the final showdown. And that this, if it happened in Greenwood, and that the Tulsa Massacre happened in Greenwood, it's very possible that this document is, is, the, is the result of the final battle, whatever that is. And I would... That's a good point. It's a I compelling would, point. I mean, it's just a storytelling point. There's no like evidence for it. It's just like where something begins is often where it ends. They like to have yeah. that sort of closure. Yep. And man, uh, I could just imagine William standing in the front of that theater saying, no, there will be no mob justice today <laughs> or some shit like just really uh, driving home the connection to that beginning. Well, that would offer some satisfying symmetry from a storytelling perspective. So, um, so who knows? But if that's the case, then this document is even more uh, valuable as a resource of what's going to happen. As a resource, not only present and past, but also future. And I feel like the unidentified subjects one and two are two of our main characters. Oh, I agree. I agree. That's not just going to be passing noise. So please go read the PDPedia, you guys, if you haven't. Um, if you want to know, I mean, we've only covered, I mean, not even half of it, but we've covered some really important stuff on it. Um, that has uncovered things about the, the, the past of the, the, the Keene family and the Crawford family, how Laurie ended up in the FBI. Uh, it's just a really satisfying uh, addition to the show, and uh, I, I can't recommend it enough. I can't think of anything else doing that uh, in media right now, and it's wonderful. I, ca- I, can't, I can't think of any media that's ever done this. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, different people, have, oddly enough... <laughs> I know that The Walking Dead tried something like this with a phone app one time that you could, while you were watching live, you could somehow interact with it. And I want to say that there were little articles um, when Lost came out, and which Damon Lindelof obviously obviously was on yeah. before. I think he might have tried something similar before, which which wouldn't surprise me. No, yeah, I, and there definitely were like weird videos you could find online and little viral guerrilla marketing things. Yeah, yeah. but uh, to me, a lot of times those are guerrilla marketing, and they don't really give you a sense of what's happening. In the show. This is like no, I agree. This is not the same thing. This is a, a, diff- a different piece. It's being it's part of the show being delivered in a different medium. It's not marketing. It's it's um it's canon. I think you know. I assume it's wonderful as yeah. what it is. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, my, the worst thing, and, and we cover a lot of things uh, in, in podcast form, you know, uh, I do the Marvel Cinematic Universe, my buddies do the DC on screen, and yeah. like, a lot of those shows are great. But every once in a while, there's a show that is just like, you paid so much money to make this show, and you did not think about this huge plot hole, or you did not think about making your character make sense, or you did not think... And yeah. like, it annoys the shit out of me when shows... You've got such a huge budget. Like, pay a few nerds to get deep on some shit and make sure you're not missing things. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, and this Absolutely. show has apparently done that to such a degree and taken such care that I am blown away. And I just, I applaud what they're doing. It's, it's do really amazing. And uh, just to, to wrap it up, I mean, taking it back to how they blend fact and fiction so well and um, how, how even with trust in the law, it was made by um, a real director. It's a fake movie made by a real director. And you got a painting and hanging in Judd Crawford's home that's a real painting. I believe it's in the Smithsonian. The real version of that painting is in the Smithsonian, um, painted by George Catlin. Ask me where George Catlin is buried. Uh, Where is George Catlin buried? He is buried in the Greenwood Cemetery in New York City. Oh, man. (laughs) So that's that's the depth that we're working with. That's crazy. That's crazy. It's it's a little more crazy that you know that. 
But I didn't know about the Tulsa Massacre, so, you know. Oh, oh yeah, that's true. Uh, but no, like, I mean, that's just how deep, because that's not in the PDPedia. That's something you discovered searching around the internet, right? That's 100% true. That's so great, man. Well, <laughs> dude, it's been a super pleasure to have you on. Hey, thanks for having me. If we, if we, if there's another season of the show, you will be a more regular part of the show if you're up for it, because uh, you, you went so deep on this, and we really appreciate you coming on and doing this. It's exciting. Um, all right, guys. Hope you enjoyed this. Uh, we'll be back soon. And remember, we're not locked in here with you. You're locked in here with us. Thank you for listening to Who Watched the Watchmen. If you want to hear more from Jason Goss, check out the DC On Screen podcast. If you'd like to hear more from me, Matthew Carroll, check out the Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast, the Star Trek Universe podcast, or the Orville Universe podcast. I also make music, so you can check that out anywhere you get music. Just search for Matthew Carroll.